Okay, hey, hey, welcome back to the IndyCar Fan Podcast. I'm John Henderson. I'm back with Michael to do the podcast after sitting together up in turn 14, Stan E. Penthouse for the Gallagher Grand Prix. And it was awesome. In fact, the whole weekend was awesome, I'd say. it's Having NASCAR and IndyCar together on the same weekend is kind of a race fan's dream in a lot of way. I mean, I don't know how many people were there for just IndyCar, how many people were there for just NASCAR. But if you like them both, then you get to see a lot of racing laps all in one weekend. And the truck series is at IRP on Friday night too. So if you're an Indy resident and you can make that one and you're into it, then you even get to see some short track racing before the weekend at IMS itself really gets going. You know, I was there all day Saturday. It was a long day. Got there in time for Cup Series practice and qualifying in the morning. Then obviously had the IndyCar race and the Xfinity race after that. But yeah, but and then for the IndyCar race, obviously hyper tuned into that as always. Watch that one together from the E-Pen house, which was sweet. I know you got to come back on Sunday. I was only there for the IndyCar race, but I stuck around for the Xfinity race for almost all of it. And then driving back through Indy on the way home on Sunday, last second decision, I couldn't, couldn't resist. I peeled in, parked and went and watched the cup race, which was cool. So I did do two NASCAR races, but I was there for the IndyCar race. I enjoyed myself, you know, at the other races, but just found it a little harder to pay, you know, harder to follow. I don't know near as much about the drive, you know, who's in what car, not as hyper tuned in, more about walking around, taking in the sights, which was great. So full weekend at IMS, but back to the IndyCar race, it was a pretty classic IndyCar race, especially the way Scott Dixon makes his record-setting start for most consecutive starts and then wins it in very Dixon-like yeah. fashion. In a way that I would say anyone on the grid, I don't know that anybody else could have won it in the same fashion that he did. In fact, I think there were three other drivers that had the opportunity to be on the same strategy, but none of them could pull it off. We know everybody in the field has the ability to save fuel like that, but I think to save fuel and keep pace for the entire race at the same time is something that we know Scott Dixon is really good at. You know, every corner mattered in this one. He wound up with Ray Hall right on his gearbox. So I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of guys could have saved the fuel. I don't know that anybody else could have saved the fuel and kept the car out front. Well, the other guys who tried it were Malukas, Grosjean. Grosjean was probably the closest to getting it done. And I think Herta, none of those guys could take the tank near as far for one thing, and none of them had the same pace. So not only could they, you know, not keep up pace wise, they couldn't save the fuel. So it was kind of miraculous, really. I don't know how much of it had to do with the Honda engine versus Chevy, different car setups that lend themselves to better fuel save. But Dixon's been known as the master. Man, he proved it because Graham Rahal had everybody covered in this race except yeah. um, for Dixon with that, I mean, with that strategy. And also, you know, though we'll get into this here in a second, but this long yellow to open the race is really what opened up the opportunity for Dixon. If race control would have gotten this thing started two or three laps earlier like they should have, I don't think Dixon could have done it. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, let's we'll talk about that part in a little bit more detail, but let's go like we usually do and talk about the grid and the strategy, and then we'll go go to the race. Okay. Strategy-wise, I have racing reference pulled up now. 2017 is the first time I see IndyCar on this configuration going 85 laps. So 
we've been doing this for many years now. This this configuration twice a year for the last couple of years. We basically know fuel consumption is going to be around 25 laps without having to save anything. So that opens the window up on lap 10 if you want to come in at the leading edge of the stint and do, you know, the remainder of the race with 25 laps fuel stints. What we didn't know going into the race was how tires were going to wear, particularly because Firestone had brought a harder red tire. The past couple times we've been here, the primary tire, the black tire, has been the preferred race tire. This time around, that wasn't the case. And I didn't really know that going into the race. So that actually was a little surprising to me once they got into it. I picked it up watching on uh, Peacock some of the interviews with the drivers and post-qualifying. But I don't think even the drivers at that point knew the extent of you know how much the red tire was going to hold up versus the black tire and pacing and all that kind of stuff. The way the race played out, it sure looked like most of the teams knew that they were going to have the majority of their stints on red tires. But we didn't know that. You and I didn't know that. That's for sure. You know, it took us a little while to figure that out pretty much through the the entire first stint. And then again, we have no idea how knowing how many sets of good red tires teams have left at the at this yeah. point in the weekend. So if you got to go through all qualifying sessions, fast 12, fast six, you're likely to burn up more of your tires. It was just a little different that way from a fan's perspective. Yeah, and it was interesting for sure. I think we probably picked up on it by the end of the first stop, obviously, we knew that that the Reds were lasting a lot longer than the Blacks because um, the first guys start coming in around lap 14 and 15, and they're all coming in to get off of the black tires, which I was surprised by sitting in the stands because I didn't really know, you know, I didn't know the details of the tire situation. All right. Well, the starting grid was really interesting because Graham Rahal was on the pole for the first time, and what did they say, six or seven years? Yeah. And outside of the front row was his teammate, Christian Lungard. So... RLL has really turned it around, and this has been their track anyway for a while, and it, it was pretty cool to see Graham on the pole. Yeah, I didn't get to watch qualifying, unfortunately. I was on my way to Indy at the time. I had the timing wrong. I thought it was later in the afternoon than it actually was. I looked up the results later, and I was totally surprised to see Ray Hall on the pole, but psyched about it. The rest of the grid was really interesting, too. I mean, you have Devlin Francesco starting fifth, he tends to have a lot of pace early in the races, tends to qualify decently well, but that's definitely an outstanding result for him. And then Marcus Armstrong, seventh. He was the fastest of his Ganassi teammates. Yeah, and then Linus Lundquist in his second start, 12th, solidly in the you know mid-pack, a little above mid-pack in front of his teammate. And then on the flip side, Joseph Newgarden, who's kind of the last guy standing as far as the championship goes to catch Pelot, ends up going 19th fastest, gets a grid penalty, so starts all the way back in 25th. We knew it was going to be a long day, but man, it turned into a really, really long day right off the bat. It did. And, and his championship rival, though, Pelot, we had him circled because he was starting ninth, with the, which is a ways back there. But again, with such a big first stop window, massive opportunity for overcut, undercut, massive opportunity to um, tailor your fuel and tire strategy. We had Pelot circle. He was starting ninth. He had a long ways up to come to get to the lead. But we were going into this one thinking it was very winnable for him. Absolutely. Okay, so we go to the green. Ray Hall gets a good jump. And from the inside of row three, Devlin DeFrancesco, you know, I guess he sees an opening to his left, swings out one lane, goes a little further. Finally, toward the break zone, he's all the way in the outside and just outbreaks everybody and rips right up to the lead. 
that was a pretty amazing move. Actually, he had to be way late on the brakes, but totally made it work, made the corner completely clean. And he drove away with the lead on the first lap, which I think uh, probably wasn't expected by anybody except for maybe Devlin himself. We've commented that, you know, the guy's definitely aggressive. I mean, he's, and, and you've said before, he usually starts well. And uh, in this case, he started really well and super aggressive on the brakes. And man, went ripping right up to the lead. That was awesome. Didn't get to, uh, well, actually, he did get to hold it a long time because of what happens going into turn seven. Armstrong had made a great move and slotted right into sixth. You know, had a pretty good exit speed coming out of four, going through those S's, but he got balked. Rossi was alongside Lungard and had to back out going through those S's and sort of crossed over into the racing line. And Armstrong had to check up, so they both had a little bit of reduced speed. And then flying up the outside, on the right side was Rosenquist, and then Pillow up on the inside going four wide up into turn seven, which didn't work. Yeah, so these guys are steaming down the back straightaway four wide, which I don't know that we ever really see him get four abreast. I mean, it definitely takes something in the chicane to to alter everybody's momentum to get them side by side like that. But Pillow wisely backs out. He was the last one to go four wide. He's the first one to back out, which is smart. I think Armstrong kind of tries to back out as well. But Pillow just, I just don't think he could get the car slowed down quick enough because he just ever so slightly taps Armstrong, but it, it spins Armstrong and strands him right in the middle of the track. And it causes a little bit of a stack up where, you know, Dixon comes piling in and then Grosjean comes piling in and clips Dixon and spins him out. And then uh, Herda comes piling in as well. And Erickson just barely clips Herda. So that's a little stack up to driver's left and then to driver's right as well. I mean, you know, Grosjean has nowhere to go. He winds up trapped. And then Newgarden at the very back of the pack with pretty much the whole field in front of him, I probably think just didn't couldn't see what was going on ahead of him. And so he comes piling in and with nowhere to go, winds up kind of propped up on uh, Grosjean's front tire. Yeah, I think Armstrong was probably, you know, didn't want to give it up because here he was solidly to the sixth, gets balked pretty hard by Rossi. He did back out, but then he cut to the inside, you know, to hit the apex. And Pelot was kind of right there, you know, his front right wing. There was nothing he could do about it. And so I think Armstrong, in a way, with the aggressive move to the inside, you know, from kind of the third lane, did it to himself. But, uh, yeah, so we go yellow. The yellow lasts a long time. You know, really, the, yeah. everybody gets going on their own except for Armstrong and Newgarden. I was watching the replay. So Armstrong gets going and stays on the lead lap. Newgarden barely just gets pushed, but half the field's already gone. So he loses his lap. But I had timed from when the yellow came out to that moment. It was three minutes, all right? And I'm looking. There's no debris on the track. This is three minutes. New Garden's rolling. But it takes 10 more minutes before we go green. I mean, they just keep going around and around and around, basically for five extra laps before they throw the green. And it was really frustrating. I was listening to some of the radios and Mostly I was listening to Eilat because he had started way back. Where was he? Um, 24th. Yeah, and he was up to 13th. So I was like, wow, that's kind of awesome. And I pick up over the radio that race controls ordered him to give up a couple spots. Then they ordered him to give up a couple more spots. So I figured there was other, play, other guys they were shuffling around as well. But it was just kind of ridiculous. You know, they... Everybody came in for service. Some guys came into a closed pit, whatever. Then they reopened them. And then finally... 
six laps into it, I believe, is when Dixon came in. Then they do two more laps before the green. Yeah, I couldn't understand it. I mean, we were sitting there watching. And so like the lap where they came by, where the the safety car came or the pace car came by, and you would think it would be pulling off to let the field go restart. Not only does it stay out, that's the lap that they apparently had opened up the pits and everybody comes in who wanted to pit. So I, I was really surprised by that. I couldn't understand A, why they waited so long to open the pits and then B, just why they needed two more yellow laps after that. So yeah, they came back around after that and you assume then that's going to be green, but no, you know, the pace car stays out. Yeah. You don't need to like give them the one to go. You could just turn the lights off on the pace car on the back straight away and, and tell the field over the radio, we're going green this time. So I don't know what their reason is, but I'm struggling to find one sitting here for why that yellow is so long. We finally go green. DeFrancesco now has eight laps in the lead, which is pretty solid. and gets a really good start on the restart. Kind of takes off, opens a nice little yep. gap. Yeah, and so does Rossi, who passes Lungard coming into turn one for fourth and works his way up to second in three laps and basically spends this first stint in uh, second place. The very next lap, Ray Hall gets DeFrancesco, but Rossi, like you mentioned, um, also gets a ward and then DeFrancesco on the next lap too. So you got Ray Hall in first and all of a sudden Rossi's in second, kind of closing in on Ray Hall. I'm thinking that Rossi is going to go up and challenge for the lead and maybe take the lead. It never happens. The two of them pull away, but, you know, real strong start for Rossi. And he's had a lot of good, you know, a lot of good races here. And I kind of expected him to take the lead. We settle into the short run to the first round of pit stops. Like we said, the window technically opens on lap 10, but I think those six laps of yellow where people were consuming fuel at half normal rate and really not putting anywhere on their tires or very little extended the stint a little bit. It was apparent fairly early on that I think the black tires were starting to go off. I mean, DeFrancesco especially fades pretty hard on this stint. He's not able to hold the lead and he starts to go backwards. And then on lap 12, actually, he bounces off of Pillow and they, they both hold on to it, but it drops below back by Kirkwood, who he had just gotten around. And then shortly after that, the guys on black tires start coming into the pits, which was to my surprise because, you know, the last couple of times we'd, we've run this track for 85 laps, it was always the guys on the reds that were coming in early. Price too. And maybe that's why the window was extended a little bit. Obviously those laps yellow made a big difference, but Guys just maybe didn't want to come off the blacks so quick, not really yeah. knowing what was going to happen, you know, with the reds as well. So those two laps in a row, lap 14 and 15, a bunch of guys come in, all getting off blacks. That's Kirkwood, Power, Eilat, Malukas. And then the next lap, Rosenquist, Harvey, VK, Canapino, and Herta. And then finally, two laps later, Award, who was on blacks, come in, and DeFrancesco and Castro Nevis. So every single guy who started on blacks, I believe, came in and got off of them before the first red stopper came in. Yeah. So we're sitting there in the stands, like, you know, these guys start coming in and it's like, okay, he's on black tires. He's on black tires. We're looking right down on pit in so we can see them. They come rolling by us pretty slowly. And it's like, huh, maybe uh, the black tires really are going off and the red tire is going to be the race tire. Obviously we didn't know for sure. We still had to see how long the red tire was going to last. But um, yeah, it was apparent that nobody really wanted to spend a lot of time on him. And so, like you said, I think by about lap 15, everybody who started on the black tire had already come in to get off of it. And under the yellow, it was Dixon, Malukas, 
Grosjean and Herta that topped up. Malukas and Herta have already come back in. So they've abandoned the strategy that Dixon's on, not even 10 laps after they had made that stop under yellow. The first stopper then from the red tires is McLaughlin comes in on lap 19. So then on lap 24, Rahal comes in from the lead and he's almost beat out of the pits by Rossi, who had been hounding him on that first stint. And then again, is right there at the beginning of the second stint. So that leaves, I think, just Lungard out there yet to pit in the lead. Lungard is leading because he he has yet to pit. So he comes in two laps later on lap 26. And he actually surprisingly gets Rossi in second. He, he comes out behind him, but then follows him around on his outlap and is able to beat him down into turn one. And it kind of looked like Rossi just let him go because uh, Rossi had switched to the black tires. Lungard had gone back to the reds. And I think Rossi was probably expecting that Lungard to come back to him later in the race, having to go back to black tires. But as it turns out, Rossi never really gets that position back. He just kind of fades a little bit. Yeah. You know, after Lungard comes in, he's the last guy to stop. He hands the lead to Dixon. Dixon's on red tires and goes all the way up to lap 32 with the reds. It still looks like it's going to be maybe a little bit short to go one more from here. But watched on TV, Townsend didn't think there was, you know, thought he was going to be well short. We weren't too sure in the seats. In fact, you would continue to point out that Dixon was still alive to make it on just one more stop. But yeah. it was too early to tell at this point. It looked like this stop was just a little bit early. Yeah, when he comes in, he hands the lead back to Ray Hall, who's on blacks now. And Lungard, who's closing the gap. Lungard gets to about a second and a half or so. And I expected him to, to get all the way up on Ray Hall and make the pass, you know, because Ray Hall's on the blacks and everybody else was really having a tough time on the black tires. Yeah, I think this second stint was largely marked by that. Uh, Ray Hall and Rossi on the black tires, Lungard on the reds. Rossi fades back to fourth place on the black tires before coming in, and Lungard runs down Ray Hall, but he never actually gets around him. And so early in the stint, with the rate he was closing, I thought Lungard was going to take the lead pretty easily. But when we get to the second stop, I was actually listening very closely to, to Ray Hall's radio and being on the black tires, they kept calling him in and he was like, I can do one more. I can do one more. I can stay out. Tires still feel good. Lungard never gets around him and Ray Hall extends the stint. I mean, basically as far as he can go, which I think winds up being huge for him in the long run of the race. So Ray Hall had really, really good pace on the black tires in this second stint. Yeah, he, he did. And then when he does finally come in, you know, we're kind of skipping over all these other stops because Ray Hall and Lungard go further than everybody on this, you know, to this second round of stops. But um, when Ray Hall finally comes in, Lungard does two more laps on the Reds and you think there's going to be a really good chance at the overcut. But he ends up having a big problem in the pits with the fuel rig and comes out actually in third. That was as close as he ever got, really, was toward yeah. the end of that stand. And we were talking about what the team might do as Lungard does he, does he force himself up there into the lead? I mean, this is not only a teammate. I think Graham's probably team owner. Not sure exactly how that whole thing's set up, but it is Rahal, Letterman, Lanigan. So kind of at this point in the race, it did look like Lungard was going to you know, have the upper hand just based on what he's, you know, what he's been doing at this track the last couple of years and that he won just a few weeks ago. So big turning point, really, when Lungard has that problem. So I don't know if we want to cover any of those stops or just keep moving on here. 
Well, yeah, we did skip over a lot of laps. So like Ray Hall comes in on lap 48, Lungard lap 50. The window opens on lap 35 with Jack Harvey, who's on the very leading edge coming in from 13th. But that's pretty early. I think the first guy who was on red tires was Polo, who comes in on lap 42. I don't have a lot of notes on on this uh, round of stops. I think at least watching live, what I was mostly tuned into was when, how long Ray Hall was going to be able to keep extending hit. And then also, you know, where he was going to come out, where Lungard was going to come out in relation to, to Ray Hall, um, you know, having those two laps of overcut. Yeah. One thing about that stint though, before Ray Hall came in, you know, here's Ray Hall in the blacks and Pillow had worked his way up to fifth and was on red tires. And, you know, we're thinking that always thinking that Pillow's got a shot to win. I expected the gap to close to Polo. He's had clear track in front of him. Ray Hall's on black tires. And I was watching that one really closely. And Ray Hall maintained about an eight-second lead. And then right before Polo came in, which was uh, a few laps before Ray Hall did, Ray Hall had extended it by two more seconds. You know, at this point, I kind of figured that some of these other competitors were really falling by the wayside and that it was kind of a two-car race. And those two cars were Ray Hall and Lungard, not Dixon. But um, this is about the time when after this Lungard slow stop, Dixon had cycled back up to the front. And here's where we were kind of counting the laps, right? We could see what his last pit stop was and how far he needed to go to get to halfway to home. And he got there. He did a 27-lap stint from lap 32 to lap 59, leaving 26 to go. Yeah, so Ray Hall's got to be like, oh, man, are you kidding me? <laughs> so all of a sudden we realizing that it is a two-car race, but it's it's not Ray Hall and Lungard. It's Ray Hall and Dixon. Dixon's second stint to get to lap 58, 59, he's got to be on heavy fuel save. But to the naked eye, it didn't look that heavy because he didn't give up. I mean, he was still making great lap time. Graham was leading everybody who we knew could make it, but Dixon was just out there the whole time out front until he came in. He beats Ray Hall, Lungard, and Ward out easily after they all make their final stop. So he still has a huge gap for uh, Ray Hall to close in the remaining laps of the race. There was a moment where Ray Hall had not made his final stop yet, and he almost loses it. I didn't realize it. I heard him on the radio, and it happened kind of right in front of our seats between turns 12 and 13, right at pin in. He got really crossed up, went full reverse lock, and saved the car. And really didn't lose a whole lot of time. I mean, I heard him called in, like, you know, almost lost it. The guys on the radio were like, hey, it didn't cost you too much time, whatever. Just stay focused. And they came in a couple laps later. So when Ray Hall comes back out, I think it's about a six-second lead with 22 laps to go. Dixon, despite all the fuel save, was still maintaining amazing pace. So I wasn't really sure what was going to happen up until Dixon had made it to lap 58, 59, it looked like Ray Hall had done a masterful job of fending off Rossi, fending off Lungard, you know, and, and maintaining control of the race. And now he's challenged with running down Dixon. And I would say total question mark. I mean, it, it wasn't until the closing laps when he actually got close to striking distance that I was even sure that he was going to be able to strike. I think Dixon just had so much pace despite the fuel save that it was a tough one to call. I can't remember how many laps were left when I really started timing the gap. And it looked to me like Ray Hall with about 12 laps to go was gaining about half a second a lap. And I think I might've said something to you that I thought he was going to catch him with five laps to go. And it took a little longer than that, but Ray Hall did catch him. And it looked like he was maybe going to make a pass with two laps to go down the front straight. Then Dixon opens up a little gap after that. 
and that's it. Yeah, Ray Hall never really got another chance on the last lap, at least not down the front straightaway like we thought he might. Yeah, after all that, Dixon comes away as a surprise winner, I would call it. After starting 15th on the grid, I didn't really consider him one of the favorites. On TV, they were kind of writing him off, and I guess we were sort of writing him off until about toward the end of Dixon's second stop. Well, we always had the idea because he made it to lap 32, which was just within touch of fuel save to make it to the end. So we we obviously weren't sure until he got all the way to lap 59. But I think what was most surprising was to maintain the pace that he did to not lose the lead to Ray Hall under such heavy fuel save, I think was what was you know really the big shock to me at the end of it. Like you said, he wasn't the only one who tried it. Nobody else even came close and had to abandon ship early on. Pretty masterful drive by Dixon. Finds all the pace he needs. Didn't show it earlier in the weekend, but had it when he needed it. That must have just been really frustrating for Ray Hall. Great to be on the pole. Awesome to finish second. But, you know, he had everybody covered and just sort of by a fluke, the way the yellow, that first yellow played out, it opened the door for Dixon and he got through it, won the race. Yeah, you're right. I think this is taking us into our finishing order segment of the podcast. But like you said, Ray Hall beat everybody except Dixon, who was essentially on a two-stop strategy when the entire rest of the field was on a three-stopper. And again, I said that, I think I said this at the top of the podcast, but I'm not sure there's anybody else in the field who could have both saved the fuel and maintained the pace to win that race, except for Scott Dixon. And Ray Hall finished right on his gearbox. So every corner mattered, you know? how much he was lifting and coasting. You go all the way back to how hard he was saving, like when they restarted the race on lap seven or eight, all those laps, every single corner, all those laps mattered. He held on to the gap at the end. That's the beauty of a long green stretch, right? There's no give backs. Everything matters. And they did about a, I guess it was a 77 lap, you know, straight run, a green flag. Yeah, like you said, every every single corner, every break zone, everything matters. There's no givebacks when there's no yellow. And that's, I thought, what made this race so awesome was that it played out, even though it was a little fluky at the start, you know, you could just see the whole thing play out. So then you get to Award and third, who we really haven't mentioned yet. He has a very solid race. He's always good on the Indy Road course, but he winds up getting... Loongard, Loongard spent a lot of this race as the one trailing Ray Hall, but he winds up getting by Loongard on the second to last pit stop with a big undercut. We're talking a 15 lap undercut. Award makes his, his second stop on lap 39. Loongard comes in on lap 54. So massive difference in strategy there. And after all those laps, Award winds up ahead of him and, and stays ahead of him. So, yeah, he, he makes the big undercut, but with a big assist from a slow stop at Lungard's part. Uh, Lungard had a great race. I mean, you know, starting outside of the front row, ends up, you know, mid-race on, on the better tire, right behind his teammate, Ray Hall, going into the next to the final stop. So plenty of time to make an overcut, undercut, whatever, just to be patient and wait it out had that problem. And then that was as close as he ever got. Yeah. But he definitely looked like a potential race winner. Uh, Rossi in fifth had a great start, started third, dropped a couple spots, but you know, charged up to second right away. It looked like he was going to challenge Ray Hall for the lead. And then on his second stint on black tires, just kind of fell out of touch with the lead at that point. Behind him, Will Power 
comes home sixth after starting 16th. He made all of his stops on the leading edge of the window. It's basically as soon as the window was open, he was in those being lap 14, 36 and 61. But he restarted 16th and was all the way up to 10th by the end of the first stop cycle, which I would guess was a mix of both an undercut pitting on the leading edge of the window and going to the red tires and then also passing people on track. And then he gets McLaughlin and Pillow on track after his final stop, having come out of the pits in eighth to wind up ultimately in sixth place. So very strong race for power, I would say. Pillow ends up in seventh, gave up that sixth spot to power with about five to go. But that's all he really needed to do, right? Stay out of trouble. At one point in the race, I guess around the middle, I thought that he may be able to contend. He was about eight seconds back. He was on the right tire, had clear track and half a race to go. But he never got any closer than that. Didn't really need to. I think he's, you know, obviously mathematically, the championship isn't over. But he pretty much did what he needed to do to, you know, secure the championship. And McLaughlin finishes behind him in eighth, having started 10th. I would say just basically spent all day right there, kind of quietly went about his business. We were there live. So he came by us 85 times. And, uh, you know, I think he just kind of flew under the radar, brought it home in the top 10. Yeah, early on in the race, I'd say about a third to a half the way through, he looked really strong to me. I think he might have been right up on Pillow, threatening to pass. I don't remember exactly, but didn't have the pace to go to the front. Ends up in eighth, not too bad. Uh, Kyle Kirkwood in ninth. I mean, it wasn't a bad race. He just never really got to the front. And now that he's got a couple wins under his belt, you know, maybe we expect or he expects to be closer to the front. You know, I don't think the Andretti cars were quite as good. And he ends up in ninth place. Yeah, he did have a pretty good start. He started 13th and got up to eighth. And then I think traded places with Pelot three times on the lap chart on the opening stint. I think Pelot had gotten by him. And then after he bounced off of Francesco, fell back behind Kirkwood. And then it was only a lap later before Pelot blew by him again. So we knew early in the race that he didn't have the pace to hang with Pelot, but he had pretty much everybody else behind that covered except for McLaughlin who beats him. That puts Kirkwood ninth. So then Erickson comes home 10th. He had a great start as well. He started 17th, came up to 12th. He then passed Lundquist and Harvey to get to 10th before even making his first stop. And then he also had really strong pace at the end of the race. After the last stop, he cycled out in 12th and passed both Lundquist and VK on track on the final stint to bring it home in the top 10. Yeah, and VK, I thought VK had a good race too. In fact, I think he was dicing it up a lot with Erickson. Uh, throughout the race. I mean, not so much wheel to wheel, but trading positions more than once. You know, came home in 11th. So I'd say pretty good, another pretty good finish for VK. I just don't think he's gotten the car to really get to the front. I mean, he won this race a couple of years ago. Probably hoping to get up a little closer to the front, but 11th place, not bad. Lundquist in 12th, solid. Yeah, another great race. He, I mean, he qualified really well again, 12th, finishes 12th stayed there pretty much all race. It was like every time they'd come by and I'd be counting the cars, there he was still right there, just outside the top 10 for his second ever IndyCar start. He raced like it, you know, was his 200th IndyCar start. I would say it was totally consistent, totally solid. We're not paddock insiders, but I would think he's turning some heads and becoming somewhat of a hot commodity with so many seats still up in the air going into next season. No doubt about that. Colton Herta ends up 13th after starting 11th. Got that flat left rear on the opening melee, which really hurt him. He had to pit for that. Yeah, just 13th. 
He did have the opportunity to do the Scott Dixon strategy, hitting under yellow with him, but he abandoned it almost right away. Topped up under yellow, which was, I think, counted on lap five and then came in again on lap 15. So probably wasn't even on the strategist's mind that they were going to be able to make it on two more stops like Dixon did. Yeah, Jack Harvey in 14th, started 14th. You know, again, completely outclassed by his teammates, unfortunately, but a decent race. I don't know. It's hard to hard to have any, anything there. Well, it's a good result for him because I think, yes, he was outclassed by his teammates, but that's further up than he's been finishing as of late. He did. I mean, there was a race here when he was with Meyer Shank where he looked like he was going to win the thing. So then in 15th, Helio Castroneves, I don't have much to say there. I mean, another mid-pack race for him. Yeah, I don't have a lot to say either. It's, it is three spots ahead of where he started, but you know, there's 27 cars in this field. So there's a lot of storylines. And I think he was just kind of a steady race starting, just you know, finishing just a little ahead of where he started. Yeah, Malukas starts near the back, ends up stopping early, I think under the yellow trying to top up and take advantage of that. Also gave up on the strategy and uh, makes his way back up to 16th. You know, he started dead last there. I think it was an engine change related to that parts failure, you know, in Nashville. Yeah, on the lead lap, 16th place. Yeah, like you said, abandoned the Scott Dixon strategy and like Herda, so he tops up on lap five. He actually comes in again on lap 14. So again, I just don't think that the strategists even considered two stops a possibility. So I'm wondering what, if those teams are surprised that Dixon, you know, if they're now looking back and being like, how in the world was Dixon able to do that? Because them coming in right away indicates to me that they probably didn't even consider it. It was in their minds. They thought all the way they were going to need to make three stops for the rest of the race, no matter what. Yeah, so Eilat in 17th, started 24th, had that incredible start and was probably frustrated by being, you know, moved around a little bit by race control. And that was kind of the highlight of his race, I guess. I didn't really, yeah, ends up 17th. He does hang on to the lead lap, though. Next up behind him is Grosjean, who's lapped. It's definitely a tough race for Grosjean. I, I put Grosjean in my fantasy lineup because he's been really good here and he was he's had a great starting spot but just started the race on the back foot. I think he was just slow to get to the gas at the very start of the race, which actually he was starting to De Francesco's outside. So I think that's ultimately what opened the door to allow De Francesco to get to the outside of the track and then make that beautiful uh, late breaking move to the lead. But he also topped up under the yellow and abandoned the Scott Dixon strategy. Although he got a lot closer than anybody else. He got to lap 29 couldn't quite stretch it to lap 32. So winds up having to do three stops after topping up under the yellow. To be fair to him, he was on the black tires for that stint. So he would have had to make those black tires go 26 or 27 laps to stay on Dixon's strategy, which considering everybody else started coming in around lap 14 or 15 would have been a lot to ask of him. Yeah, I was watching him on his final stint. I forget why he got stuck so far back there, but he was running in 16th, and he was looking good, though. He passed Castroneves, then he went up and passed Harvey, and he was really right on Herta's tail, and I expected him to pass Herta. And then when they came around to take the checkered, he was nowhere to be seen. I was like, hey, where's Grosjean? Where is he? Where is he? We were looking at the TV screen to see if they spotted him somewhere, you know, out of fuel, but never saw anything. Somewhere yeah. out on, on course, he must have run out of fuel and then, you know, just pulled it out of the way behind the walk. 
He never came back around. So that cost him four spots, maybe five. DeFrancesco ends up in 19th. He's really the first guy one lap down. Had an incredible start. Made the fast six. Started inside of the third row, the top Andretti in the order. Went to the lead. So for that reason alone, I'd say it was a great race for him. I think he maybe extended the black tire stint a little longer than he should have. You know, he was clearly struggling on them going backwards after having taken the lead. And when other guys started coming in around lap 14, lap 15 to get off of him, he went all the way to lap 17. And in fact, he may have been the last guy to start on black tires to come in and pit. I don't know what they were waiting for. I also don't know how much it would have done for him in the long run, but I think we'll all remember this race for the spectacular start he had and the, and the move he made to get to the lead. That's definitely an instant highlight reel moment. So for that reason alone, I would agree with you. I'd say good race. Yeah. And I agree that he stayed on too long. I mean, he was, we'd listened, I was listening to his radio a little bit there at the start and his, his strategist was just, you know, kept telling him to calm down, calm down or relax, relax. But really they should have listened to him. They should have brought him in. But uh, who knows if that would have made much of a difference. Hunter Ray in 20th after starting 21st. I don't have a lot to say there. It was deep in the field and in different battles with Eilat, Canapino, and those guys all day long. But yeah, it was hard to pick up on anything from up in the grandstands. His second stint was only 15 laps long. So I'm guessing that's when he was on the black tires, kept it nice and short. But I'm with you. I don't have a lot to say. Now that we're getting this far back in the field, it's it's tough to keep track of everything going on at once. Canapino finishes behind him in 21st, one spot ahead of where he started. And Stingray Rob is there in 22nd, also one spot ahead of where he started. These guys were a little bit spread out. It looks like Canapino was eight seconds back from Hunter Ray. And then Stingray was another five seconds back from Canapino. Stingray did start ahead of Malukas, his teammate, Thought for a little bit there, he might be able to hang on, stay in front of him for the whole race, but I guess it just wasn't wasn't his day. Yeah, and Ferrucci, not a great starting spot, 20th. I mean, not his worst, but looked pretty good in the first stint, actually. Made a couple spots, had gotten rid of the black tires, and was coming out to start his second stint when something happened where the, the air gun got wrapped around one of his tires, and he pulled it out of the pit, so he ended up stopping out in the middle of pit lane and then serving a stop-and-go penalty really kind of ended his race. But I think he was poised to finish in the top half, actually, based on how he looked at the you know first stint. Yeah, I would say after all that, having to um, untangle the car from the pit equipment, being stopped in the pits and everything, and then having to come back in for not just a drive-through, but a stop-and-go, and finish only one lap down... You know, you'd expect somebody to to be scored two or three laps down at the end of this thing after all that. So I think he probably had a lot more pace than was shown. Armstrong, tough start, you know, got caught up after what looked like a, you know, a rocket launch, but didn't make it around. He ends up fighting that the rest of the day. Newgarden, same thing. And it looks like his championship hopes are, I don't know that they're gone, but probably pretty close. And then um, Benjamin Peterson, once again, just like last race at the GMR Grand Prix, he doesn't roll off in time to take the green. I think it looked like another electrical thing. Yeah, just bizarre. Too bad, too. Starts the race, I don't know how many laps down, but definitely not on the lead lap. And then Rosenquist had looked pretty good. For a while, the, the McLarens were, I think, two, four, and six. Uh, early in the race. And actually, I wanted to say something about this earlier. McLaren has not won yet this year, and this was the race where they were really poised to do it. They had 
The Penske's well behind them. You know, Polo starting back in ninth, Dixon all the way back in 15th. It just looked like with Award and Rossi taking up the second row and Rosenquist not too far behind, that this was kind of McLaren's chance to really, you know, dominate. And they just couldn't do it. I mean, Ray Hall was just too good. But at times they looked like they were going to contend, especially Rossi at the beginning and Award a little bit, you know, mid-race. Rosenquist looked good too. I mean, he was, I think, behind his teammates all day, but up in sixth place. I guess I had him as high as fifth. And then, um, you know, had engine issues and finally retired on the final stint for 27th. But that wraps the order up. Yeah, so we've got three races left on the calendar. We head to Gateway next, and then Portland, and then Laguna Seca. So Alex Pelot's carrying a 101-point lead into Gateway, but we know how strong Newgarden is. I mean, it's very much a long shot for Newgarden to come back, but I think he's definitely poised to just chip away a little bit, maybe uh, take second place in the standings from Dixon, just with how good he's been on ovals, how good he's been at Gateway. I think McLaughlin has a great chance to get his first oval win in this next race. And yeah. And then we got Portland and Laguna Seca after that Laguna Seca, crazy heavy tire wear. So a couple more IndyCar races to go. Yeah. So Dixon did move into second place. As you mentioned, you know, Newgarden could maybe get the spot back. Dixon is 101 points back with three to go. Pretty much a long shot, but it's not over. And we're looking forward to seeing what happens. Hopefully you'll tune in with us again in two weeks. All right. Well, in honor of Scott Dixon's 53rd IndyCar win, I've got a tune queued up for him called Dixie Dynamite. It's uh, from the Freddie Jones Band out of Chicago, released in 1993 on the album Waiting for the Night. And uh, even though this song is clearly about a female, the title Dixie Dynamite kind of says it all. So here we go. Southern gal, she's got all the parts, she's built quite well, and her name is Dixie Dynamite. She's a lady with beauty and grace, she's got all this to see her face, hair so big, don't really grab your eyes. Big Bad Bill was a man of me, and when he come around, he hear Dixie scream. They jumped in his Cadillac. Every day for them was fun, cruising on the alcohol 101. They ain't coming back, no. Well, they couldn't believe now what they saw Dixie driving with her top on down When the sun come out, she don't waste no time Her and Bill drive the county line And they sit there, talk about their terrifying <laughs> <laughs> Bill said, Dixie, won't you be my wife? She said, yeah, babe, let's share our lives You seem to be the man for me Dixie got as fat as a horse And Bill don't turn and give her divorce He ran out the back door as fast he could Well, he traded in his caddy for spandex 
Dixie, Dixie Dynamite Dixie 